Hello, I'm Michael Barr. I'm Evan Novi Williams. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, a conversation with Capital Four Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Mark Ein on his investment in the City Open Tennis Tournament in Washington. That's coming up in a few minutes, but first, let's get to some of the topics. And let's start with Stephen Ross. He is the owner of the Miami Dolphins, and he is an investor in Equinox Gems and Soul Cycle. He is defending his decision to hold a Trump fundraiser at his house in New York's Hamptons, saying that he likes to engage directly and support the things I deeply care about. People are now upset at Ross. People need people. Uh, you're singing. People. Like Some that. people are upset. Yeah. The Soul Cycle set seem to be upset with uh, Stephen Ross's decision to support President Trump, said he's known him for 40 years. But it took a while to get to the statement, first of all. Um, Eben, do you get the sense that Stephen Ross was not prepared for the backlash? I mean, and it came, by the way, one of his own players pointed it out, that, yeah. it, that it's incongruous. There's a cognitive dissonance between you having a, a charitable arm that is about equality... Uh, and then supporting President Trump. That's yeah, what his player that, states. That's Kenny Stills, wide yeah. receiver for the for the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I, I think he was maybe caught a little off guard by both the manner in which it came out, a player of his, uh, and also kind of the fervent backlash. I mean, it was almost instantaneous. You saw people on Twitter talking about their Soul Cycle membership, Cancel. their their Cancel. their, their right. Equinox membership. Um, worth noting, you know, Stephen Ross. Beyond those things that you said, Michael is, a, I mean, a huge. Real estate developer Hudson Yards here in New York was it was a project of his company, um, Momofuku and Pizza. They're, I mean, they're there related is, companies. There is a, a huge development. Th there is a huge amount of companies that 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 a lot of people in big cities at least interact with almost on a daily basis that that trace their way back to his money. Well, I want to clarify this. People have every right. If you are a personal, you know, you want to do your personal whatever, and you want to support. A presidential candidate well, hey, but or whatever. Let's be clear too. Stephen Ross that. did say that I've known Donald Trump for forty years. Uh, I'm all about helping the economy. This is why I want to be a part of this, so I can help grow the economy. And the president and I disagree on a number of issues. He said I don't agree with the man on everything, but I do think it's important to be involved to help the economy. So there he is. A couple years ago, there were nine, I think, nine different NFL owners who had either donated to Donald Trump's yes. campaign or mm -hmm. to his inauguration. I don't believe Stephen Ross was one of them, um, but that list included Bob McNair. It included Shad Khan down in Jacksonville. Major difference, though. Uh, Woody major, Johnson. Major difference. That was before he was president. Sure. And what some would say, again, we are not making judgments here as to right, wrong, yes, no. But before the policies were enacted as president. So those are those are two different things when you're donating to get him elected president for the for the first time and now supporting a reelection yep. having seen what has occurred during his tenure. Those and, are two different things. And we saw SoulCycle come out and say that he's an a passive investor, is not in any yeah. way actually involved <laughs> in the company. I mean, I can't imagine that this in any way harms Stephen Ross's business in the overall. I mean, do either of you guys disagree with that? The man's a billionaire, so does <laughs> well, he feel it? I, you wouldn't think he'd feel it in the pocketbook, no. Speaking of upset, LeBron James is upset. And the reason why is that the NCAA wants agents to have a college degree. Yeah, and I, I got to disagree with LeBron on this one. Mm. 
in that Rich Paul, of course, his childhood friend and now agent, also represents Anthony Davis, also represents Draymond Green, perhaps, arguably, the most powerful agent in the National Basketball Association, just sold Clutch Sports to United Talent Agency for $300 million, will now be the CEO of the sports component of UTA. This rule is designed to affect players, college players, who are on the margins. They're going to go and test the NBA waters and say, hmm, am I getting good advice? Should I go back to school? Correct me if I'm wrong. And he may engage some of those players, but Rich Paul's about the creme de la creme. Rich Paul will have his pick of the surefire kid from Kentucky, from Duke. He's about the best college basketball players. I'm not so sure this is aimed at Rich Paul. No, this is a this is a question of, of the NCAA putting what a lot of people think is an onerous requirement on on a new thing that they're offering to college to, to college athletes. Of course, and, but that's and, not the point LeBron made. Sure, he, he wasn't you're just right. saying this that, is onerous. Not, by LeBron the is angry about Rich LeBron Paul. LeBron is saying this is aimed at Rich Paul. But there is yeah. a, and that's ridiculous. There is a wider, better point. There, there's yeah, but to LeBron be made that, it. that an agent doesn't need to have a college degree to be effective. Yes. you can have a bad agent who has a college degree who has a graduate degree. Um, it, this is a requirement that the NBPA theoretically has for its agents, but it does not enforce, obviously, because Rich Paul one, does ha- it. Well, also, one, the N- the N- the NBA has a union. Sure. I mean, and its players are unionized. Yes. That's not true in college. That's the difference here. Yes, the NCAA should have a better way of of, of evaluating and, and, and approving and licensing agents than demanding that they have a college degree. I want to talk real quick about Simone Biles, a U.S. gymnast, and she is upset with the uh, USA Gymnastics. She said, look, you had one job, and you failed to protect athletes in the abuse scandal. And uh, she's still upset about it, and she's 22 to this day. And it was a tearful uh, comment that she made about all of the abuse that her fellow athletes had to go through. Yeah, and there is no more powerful name in gymnastics right now than Simone Biles. Right. So if she feels that she can use the celebrity uh, to – force change to open eyes to all of it good for Simone Biles because uh, obviously the USA gymnastics scenario has just been beyond beyond awful yeah and it and you know we're less than a year away from the Tokyo Olympics their USA gymnastics is going to need to send a, a men's and a women's team to Tokyo you know there's still this p- potential specter of being decertified by the USOC. I mean, the government is looking at it. the whole thing is, is a mess right now. And she's right to be frustrated, right? She's 22. She, this, this might be her last Olympic, who knows, might be her last or second to last. Um, but yeah, the good for her for being the most powerful well, person in the sport in and the sport, also yeah. keeping this relevant. Bar, I got to tell you, if I had an, an Olympia, young Olympian swimming gymnastics, I don't care, whatever, you better be sure I am there every step of the way. Oh, yeah. As mom, as dad, as whatever. Well, two things. I'm sorry. I am there every step of the way. First, I should add that Biles says that she was one of the hundreds of athletes abused by Larry Nassar, the former U.S. gymnastics national team doctor over the span of two decades. And if you remember also, uh, when Nassar was in court, 
and there was a parent of one of the athletes who was abused. Yeah, and tried to get at him, and he tried to get at him, and and I remember the uh, the officer in court holding him down, saying, "I know how you feel." Yeah. But you know you can't do that. Yeah, and I, I understand what you're saying. I'd I'd be right there, lickety split. For sure. Now let's get to this week's interview with Mark Hine. He's the chairman and CEO of Capital Four, and he's investing in Washington's City Open Tennis Tournament, looking to make it a destination event in the Beltway. He's also a former Open for the City Open uh, ball boy, at which I didn't know about. I, I will do better research the next time. <laughs> uh, we're pleased to welcome him to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are, Mark. We're a few days past the City Open. Why don't you give me a little post-mortem? How'd it go? Yeah, it was an unbelievable week. Um, this is a 50-year-old event in our community that actually I was a ball kid when I was a little kid. And we took over the event this year. And our theme was reimagining a great Washington summer tennis tradition. And so we looked at every part of the event from the food to the hospitality to the merchandise, even the chairs that people sat in. And it was unbelievable. Uh, we broke the all-time ticket record on, by Tuesday. Um, concession sales were double previous years. What it just proved is if you put on a high-quality product around a tennis, great world-class tennis event, people respond. And um, it was it was really extraordinary. What is the secret? What is the high quality aspect around just the tennis that, that you guys put in this year? Yeah, a lot of it really did center around the fan experience. So we built. There never had been a place for non VIPs to go indoors in the tournament. There was never uh, an area. So we built a gigantic food pavilion with some of Washington's best restaurants. Uh, we did tennis talks in there every day. We did the draws in there. We had a DJ. We had a huge bar and amazing food. And um, it was on the other side of the site from where people had usually eaten. And so we were a little worried would people go find it. We opened our doors on Saturday of qualifying, and the place was jammed from morning until night. So that was a big piece of it. But then there was, there was other fantastic little food things all over the grounds, carts selling stuff. And um, and, and then just attention to detail. And we're just a huge, I'm a huge believer that people notice all the little details. Uh, they notice when, when people look like they're attending to every little thing. And the aggregate result of it is people came and tried it in the beginning of the week. And then they just kept coming back and back and back. The last four sessions, sessions were sold out. Seven of the 11 days were sold out. And Mark, I'm curious, do you subscribe to the David Stern theory of management in that micromanagement is underrated or like do you walk around and see everything or did you delegate and say, all right, everybody take care of it in a way that, you know, I want it to be done. It is both. No one person can do it. And we had a massive amount of people who worked unbelievably hard, who are really talented. Um, and so it really was an army of people who made this happen and working for months and months to get there. But for seven, eight days, I was moving trash cans, um, literally uh, moving chairs around, looking at every little thing that needed to be attended to. And I, I do think when you look at great consumer products, great consumer events, usually there is a person or one or two people who are sort of attentive at that level of detail. Um, and then a team of people who can go execute when they see it. So it's a little bit of combination, but definitely, um, definitely driving to personally to do whatever it took to make it an amazing event. 
when you have gone as a consumer, as a fan to various events, which one or two sticks out in your mind? You say, this is the way it should be done. I would model my tournament after this. I mean, the three that come to mind to me are, or four, are the Masters, Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and then there's a tennis event called the Labor Cup, which is a new event, um, all of which are just, everything is done at the highest level of quality. I think the thing that I admire about the Masters so much is it's not, it's not doing everything. There's a balance between tradition and um, and and making it a great fan experience, but also not doing too much, giving just places where there's nothing commercial, places to walk around, not trying to fill every space with a sign or a cart or something. Wimbledon is an amazing balance of um, is an amazing balance of um, blending tradition and modernity. The U.S. Open is a American-centric version of that that just takes tennis and puts it in an urban environment, executes at a world-class level. And then this Labor Cup is really one of the great tennis hospitality events. So I think imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And every time I go to a sporting event, I have a pad of paper and I take notes. Um, and whenever we see a good idea, we borrow it and try to try to bring it to our event. How about the opposite question? I mean, I'm sure you go to other sporting events besides golf and tennis. Are there things you see other leagues that are doing and, and you sit there as a fan and think, man, th- this is this is why people attendance is declining at, at games like this. Or th- this is why the experience yeah. here is not is not what it should be. And name names. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a big basketball fan. I have floor seats at the Wizards. Um, one of the things we did this year is we put floor seats on the stadium court. People said, where did you get that idea? I said, it's not hard. It was, that's what they do at basketball games. So we literally put 20 seats on the court, which were a gigantic hit. How much did um, they cost? They were 4000 bucks for the week, about five, 600 bucks per session. And um, we're going to have, we're, and uh, interestingly, they were some of the slowest to sell. I think it took a while for people to understand it, but once they once they saw it, and then once they saw Nick Kyrgios going over and high fiving every person in the dream seats after a great shot, they started they started selling. So we're going to have forty of those next year. I'd be afraid um, to sit courtside with Kyrgios. You could come next year is my guess. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, that's the thing about tennis. It's been a part of my life, but it's. Even I don't, you can't appreciate the speed of these athletes, the intensity of the points and the speed and shape of the ball flight, unless you're on the court. There's something very different. It does not translate. The athleticism does not translate fully to TV. And it doesn't even fully translate if you're removed in the stadium. When you get on the court, every person I brought down there was completely blown away. So, but, but it's a broader theme about the ascension of basketball it's just it, they've made the sport accessible. The athletes are social media savvy. People sit on the court. You know, they don't wear hats and face masks and everything else. You feel like you can relate to them, like you can get to know them. And that was something that we tried to do with our event here. I actually do think the next generation of tennis players get that. And people like Nick Kyrgios and Jeannie Bouchard and Serena Williams are very social media savvy, have gigantic followings. And um, actually, I'm very optimistic about the future of the sport because the next generation of young athletes are terrific. They're terrific tennis players, but they're also very good at engaging fans. Mark, again, thanks for talking with us. Now, let's talk about the future of tennis. Even Serena Williams at some point has to hand things off 
They have to hand the baton to the young guns. What do you see for the future of tennis and fans connecting to the new stuff? For sure. So we were really fortunate that a couple weeks before our event, Coco Goff, after her Wimbledon run, her family called and said they wanted to make her next appearance in D.C. this week. Um, we were very lucky because due to some arcane rules, she couldn't, we couldn't give her a wild card even in the qualifying. But the day before, she ended up getting in the qualifying draw. And, uh, you know, qualifying weekend where you have the people who aren't in the main draw qualifying usually gets a fairly sparse crowd. And on the Sunday of qualifying, it was basically a sellout. Over 7,000 people came out to watch. Um, and every match Coco played just was the, the stands were completely full. She ended up qualifying, losing in the first round of singles, but then her and her partner won the doubles. And the crowds that, that followed her, it was extraordinary. And it's clear not only has she captivated tennis fans, but just people much more broadly than that. So that, that's one fantastic example. But similarly, on the, on the men's and women's side, our whole strategy here was to embrace the next, what on the men's side, they've branded the next-gen players. And there is this, of which Nick Kyrgios has won, Francis Tiafo, Stefano Tsitsipas, um, and on the women's side, Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens and, um, and Coco coming up and with her. Um, and people respond fantastically well. And it's a deep, it's a deep set of players is not just one or two. There's a large set of them who are rising through the ranks, uh, may having breakthroughs during the tour. And we effectively marketed the event around them rather than what tennis events usually do is they go pay a lot of money to have one big name person come play. Um, we actually took a different approach and decided to go after this whole next generation, and it worked fantastically well. Mark, I want to ask you actually about two specific players, and you've mentioned both of them, the first being Coco Golf. Do you feel as though the, the age restrictions on her, as we've talked about on this show before, and as you know, you know, she can't be a full-time WTA player for a number of years now because she's so young, but she's had so much success at a young age. Do you think that they are, are restrictive in a way that should be revisited, or do you think that, that those rules are fair for her right now? I think having some on-ramp to being a pro athlete at that age, which is not a full immersion, is smart. Um, I think, though, at the same time that, they, that she is making people rethink exactly what rules are appropriate. And as in a lot of things, um, that's, a, that's smart. I mean, in anything you do, you want to, as, as situations change and new situations arise, you don't want to make one-off exceptions, but you want to see that potentially it was too restrictive uh, and we should loosen them up a bit. So I don't think it should be just free, total free-for-all entry um, onto the tour because that really did burn out a lot of people um, in, over time and, and had an adverse effect. But I do think the rules as they're currently constructed for someone like Coco, who's proven her ability not just to handle the pressure on the court, but she's an extraordinarily young, extraordinary young woman off the court that she should have an opportunity to play to play more than she currently does. And then real quick on, on Nick Kyrgios, who just won the, the men's draw at the City Open, a, a guy who I believe has been on your, your World Team Tennis team as yeah. well, um, a guy who's a lightning rod for controversy, you know, traditionalists in tennis, uh, maybe necessarily don't think he's a great thing for the sport. Um, but at a time when I think a lot of the, the big names are very buttoned up, at least on the court, um, where do you kind of stand on, on how healthy he is for, for tennis as a overall? I, I think Nick's great for tennis. I mean, I don't, I, I, and we're friends and I really, I support Nick. I think Nick is great. 
you know, I think sometimes lines get way crossed and Nick will be the first to admit it, you know, looking like you're not trying and, and giving away games. There's nothing good about that. But the showmanship, the engagement of fans, anyone who saw what happened in D.C. this week would be hard pressed to not say Nick Kyrgios is great for tennis. If you missed it in his last three matches, including the final when he was serving for match points, he went in the stands and asked a fan in the stands where he should serve, executed it, <laughs> won the point, went over and hugged the fan. I mean, it was unbelievable. As I said, he was high-fiving people in the dream seats. And you know what else? Nick was the first person to volunteer on Saturday of qualifying to go do Kids' Day. And he was out on the court at 9 a.m. with kids in the community uh, doing a clinic for kids. So the guy has a huge heart. He's incredibly charismatic. He brings new people into the game. Um, and if you listen to what he said after this week, he feels like this has been a breakthrough week for him. And uh, if he can sort of, and he, again, he would be, he would say it himself, if he can just get some of the sort of more outrageous stuff under control, but not change who he is, um, he is fantastic for the game of tennis. Mark, you talked about the future stars of tennis, but what about the demographic of those in the crowd? We hear about other sports struggling to reach younger people. What data do you have on who's in your seats? Yeah, well, we're getting our fan data back. But I, I will tell you, after our 12 years of World Team Tennis, is what we have learned is that if you put on a high-quality tennis product that is as good off the court as on the court, meaning great food, great beverage, a, a, a fan-friendly, fun environment, that pro tennis events are an amazing on-ramp to the game. And not only do you get the hardcore tennis fans, but we've filled the seats for 12 years in our World Team Tennis stadiums with non-hardcore tennis fans, but people who might have a casual or even little interaction with tennis, but they come out and then they have a great time. And I'm a huge, I'm a huge believer in that. And people always ask how you get big crowds. I'm like, there is, there is no silver bullet. It's a layer cake. You need to... You need to think, how do I appeal to all groups, um, all demographics? How do I appeal to families, uh, businesses, individuals, young, old? And the greatest compliment we ever get, and we get this consistently in team tennis, and I'll tell you it's going to be the same at the City Open, is that the events are the greatest melting pot of our community. When you look around the stands, it is representative of every demographic, background, gender, age, and geography and in our diverse community. And frankly, for me, this is not my day job. This isn't what pay the bills, but my motivation is I think sports has a unique ability to bring together communities in a way that probably only music is the only other thing. And we love harnessing the power of sports to bring people together at a time when, uh, when we all need that more than ever. But you do have to pay the bills and does the tournament do that on its own? as a standalone event? How did the ledger look? So this year was definitely an investment year. We had to make big investments to reimagine the event in infrastructure and, um, and all the upgrades that we talked about. The, it hasn't come in, but I, I, the financial results are going to be much, much, I and mean, they're going to be far exceed our expectations. And it set us up for, I think, actually turning this into a quite profitable event in the future. Um, you know, obviously... We had to prove what the reimagined event looked like and had to prove that it would work. We've now proven it. And so when we go back out for sponsors and other 
uh, economic deals, I, I think that the future of the event um, is going to be very bright. Mark, don't want to let you go without asking about esports as well. Last year, you, you led an investment group that bought the, the Washington Justice. Uh, for folks who don't know, that's in the Overwatch League, which is you know the big league around Activision Blizzard's game Overwatch. Uh, I'm curious what you. I don't know how much your your esports background was, but what you've learned from that investment in the in the first 12 months. Yeah, that, thanks for bringing that up. It's been it's been extraordinary. I mean, you know, tennis definitely has a slightly older demographic, and esports <laughs> has a younger demographic. So we've kind of bookended life uh, with those two, but it's been fun. We actually even showed the our video in the tennis stadium, uh, which I think it really was entertaining to people because um, it is exposing them to a different uh, a different activity. But um, I've learned a ton. I mean, that is an incredible. There's an incredibly large, passionate group of fans around esports, um, greater than anything else I've seen. I, you know, you guys know the stats: two point six billion people on the planet play video games. And when you look at the engagement amongst 18 to 24 year olds, it's all about esports. The Overwatch League um, fan study is that one those fans 18 to 24 watch traditional sports 1.8 hours a week watch esports 4.9 hours a week and play video games 20 hours a week. And, um, and that's what our experience has been. When you get, when you, you know, the community has just been unbelievably engaged. And the, the, that Washington team, you know, has been based out in California. Next year, we'll be moving back home to D.C. kind of for the first round of home matches, so to speak, for the franchise, um, given kind of how you've thought about envisioning tennis tournaments, give us a sense real quick of how you envision a home esports match in DC looking next year. We have two amazing venues. Um, the Anthem, which is one of the great new music halls in America, it's recently built on the waterfront as one of our venues. And then um, the ESA, which is a new multi-purpose arena built by the city for the other that actually was uh, built with esports in mind. So it starts with having great venues. And then we're going to take the same approach I described that we do for the tennis. My, our whole goal is to create an experience that esports fans love, but that also is going to be a great on-ramp for people who first exposure to esports will be coming to a justice game. And so as we think about the seating, the hospitality, the way you explain the game, the food and beverage, it's going to be with a much broader target audience in mind, not just core esports. Um, and the whole nature of an esports experience, it's an extraordinary, the aesthetics of an in-person esports uh, match. Are, it's incredible. Um, it really is incredibly energizing. And uh, so we're looking forward to to bring that to Washington and exposing a whole new group of people to uh, to the future of esports. Is Ted Leonsis going to invest in your tennis tournament? Seems like something he'd like to add to his portfolio. <laughs> you know, Ted and I are great friends, and we are always talking about things to do together. We have a great partnership with Monumental. Um, and uh, so we're, we're always talking about ways to collaborate. All right, Mark Ein, the chief investor in the City Open. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Mark Ein, he had a great point about the future of tennis. And we think right now, because Serena Williams, she's going to be around forever. No, it does not happen like that. And I was, <laughs> I remember he mentioned something about the, the Laver tennis tournament for the famous Rod Laver. And I'm sure people back in the day were thinking, Rod Laver's going to be around forever. 
And uh, it, it's it's a reminder that uh, there's always evolution uh, in the world, and it's going to be the same way in tennis. Do you remember when we spoke about Amy Trask mopping the floor? Yep. Well, it struck me, and again, it's just business of sport lessons, business of business, where he was like, I was moving trash cans. I was out there picking stuff up. This is the guy who is now the lead investor in the tournament and understands that, yes, you have to delegate, as he said, but he believed in the David Stern system of management and a bit of micromanagement and, and be around, <laughs> make sure you're seeing and touching and doing. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go hang out in the VIP suites and not get my hands dirty. He knew if he's going to make this thing what he envisions it should become, he's got to be an active participant in that change. I keep coming back to what was a, kind of a throwaway line that he said kind of towards the end when we were talking about esports, and he said that they hired for the City Open, they hired people to run social media for the tournament from, from the esports, esports yeah. uh, which is a, a really smart thing to do. And, and for folks out there who, who follow both esports and traditional sports, esports does a tremendous job in terms of social media, in terms of video content, pushing it out. They have a way of speaking to, to, to young children especially, uh, you know, which is very effective. Uh, good on Mark Ein for, for realizing less than a year after he bought that Washington esports team that, you know, this is an industry that, that we can learn from back in traditional sports. Uh, and I know he's not the only one, but I imagine there's going to be a lot more later on who are looking to esports to grab people to run social media in traditional sports. I see another business bar. They're going to they're gonna get all their folks from esports to start doing the social and reach out, uh, community outreach for the traditional team sports. Hello, Ted Leonsis. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. You didn't have one. I, no, I do have one. But you didn't have one. I didn't have one until I realized this was one of the easiest numbers. Oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> 100. 100. NFL, 100th year. It, Boom! Oh, ding, nice. ding, ding. Boom! Nice, man. Nice. Thank you. Oh, I know it's Roger Federer's birthday, but I figured 100 was too old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, you figure he's going to go off a Rod Lever, it might be 100. <laughs> Oh, man. You're listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online as an Apple podcast. And you can catch that Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. And I'm Scott Soshnick. You can follow me on Twitter at Soshnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak to the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs> 